Are you a 3PL spending more time and money than you'd like recruiting and onboarding logistics roles? Then it's time to check out Rapido Solutions Group, the leaders in nearshore logistics staffing. Located right next door in Mexico, they have access to the freight talent you need. From carrier sales to tracking and tracing and everything in between, they can do the heavy lifting for you. So if you're ready to get your time back and want to move fast, check out Rapido Solutions Group. Visit GoRapido.com to get started today. Hello, and welcome to the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics, the podcast highlighting founders doing it the way that doesn't get a lot of attention. We're here to change that by sharing their stories and inspiring others to take the leap. It's a roller coaster ride that you might ultimately fail. That's when I kind of knew I was on to something. It was very hard. It truly is building a legacy. The more life you live, the more wisdom you have. Because we are where we're supposed to be, kind of answering the call. Don't shoulder entrepreneurship on your own. I'm your host, Nate Schutz. Let's build something together from the ground up. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We are excited to keep sharing logistics founders' backgrounds and stories. The goal, as always, is to inspire and educate and connect founders to one another through community. And sometimes the stories are a straight line. Somebody has an idea and they launch a business and they have success or they don't have success. And the conclusion is somewhat obvious in hindsight. And then for other folks, it is a meandering road and there's never a ton of certainty about where it's going to go. And occasionally there's a founder who has done all of those things. And that's why this week I'm really excited to get to introduce Seth Patton. He's a CEO and founder of LogistaView, but He's also founded and exited and shut down other companies before. So we're going to go on a meandering journey today and see where it leads. Good morning. How are you? Doing great, Nate. Uh, I love that intro. That's a fantastic description (laughs) of my life experiences so far. Well, I want to unpack some of them. But first, to get our listeners a little bit more grounded in what you're doing right now, can you tell us about LogistaView and what it does? Sure thing. So Logistaview is uh, really an, an end-to-end operations management platform. It's a SaaS platform that combines operations planning and operations execution in real time with what we call automated decision-making, basically you know, AI. Not large language model AI, um, you know, more attainable, accessible, you know, runs on normal computers. We help automate decisions about work management, work distribution, who should get what, when, where, et cetera. And then we also optimize processes and control end user experience with kind of next-gen workforce tech. You know, so we're, one of our cool things that we do is we put smart glasses on workers and uh, give them the ability to uh, capture data they couldn't otherwise capture, get instructions they couldn't otherwise get, and then use that data to feedback automation of what to do next. Basically, next best decision-making about what should I do to... Um, you know, make sure I'm doing the right work at the right time automatically across all of my operation. What's the context of that then? Is that all in distribution centers? Is that field work? Primarily right now in distribution, manufacturing, and retail store operations. Our primary customers are in distribution. That's, you know, really warehousing is, is where we've made uh, kind of our first foray, as we'll discuss partly because of my background in warehouse management software. We're very quickly uh, making progress into manufacturing as well, particularly integrated manufacturing where you have you know, potentially an assembly process like automotive pre-assembly, for example, is one of our customers. Those are the kinds of things that we're trying to kind of help connect the dots and automate the flow of work in an operation 
in uh, some pretty innovative ways. Well, I can talk warehouse management systems, WMS, otherwise known as Where's My Stuff. I can talk about that for hours. I am personally fascinated with the four-wall ecosystem that a warehouse is. There are a few other places that are fully contained, you know, physically, culturally, they're separate most times from their headquarters or branches or otherwise. They operate somewhat independently and they become their own society almost. And so to add in like this layer of intelligent planning around all of that, that's every head of logistics and fulfillment and warehouse manager's dream. That's what we're going for. So my career started in warehouse management. Uh, my education, I've got a degree in computer engineering from Milwaukee School of Engineering. I always joke I've got an MBA from the School of Hard Knocks. My initial focus was uh, I started my career at Red Prairie back when it was still Red Prairie. And so uh, you have now, for those of you who've never heard that name, Blue Yonder, I work basically for almost my entire career now in Blue Yonder, you know, Red Prairie JDA warehouse management software. And so at a very young age, I really got introduced to WMS after, you know, left Red Prairie pretty early, went to go work for a customer. So then I got to feel the customer side of WMS, which was kind of cool. Went into consulting and I, you know, I've really been in consulting for nearly 15 years now. Just recently exited my consulting firm, Exologics. Logistiview kind of came out of all of that. I love the way you describe it. Where's my stuff? You're so right. WMS is all about where's my stuff. But it's so not about who is working on my stuff. How should they work on my stuff? When should they work on my stuff? And where should they work on my stuff? Really, in, in implementing WMSs and customizing WMSs over and over and over again to deal with some of the people problems, it's like WMS is really good at tracking data. I was like, there's got to be a better way to really build a system that's focused first on people and process. Obviously, the data is like super important. It's kind of table stakes at this point. You know, if you think about where the WMS industry came up, it was like back in the 90s, you really wanted to know that if you put something into like a you know online glorified spreadsheet that it stayed there. And like transactional processing and stuff like that was really cool. It was kind of like critical. But by now, everyone has that. That's normal. So the question becomes now, how do I take all that data and make it intuitive for a workforce? How do I take all that data and make it intuitive for a management team? And how do I let the management team be focused on people instead of like spreadsheets and task assignments and stuff like that? Like that's all really, you want to talk about things that are like non-human. AI can make those decisions. It can't go have a conversation and say, Nate, hey, how are you doing today, man? That's the thing that our managers need to be empowered to do. And that was kind of how Logistive started is like, we've got to find a better way to do this. You experienced the pain, you saw others experiencing it, and then you decided to go off and, and start some SaaS building to make that happen. But this isn't your first rodeo. I know you have exited Asologics. What was that process like? Just the building something for years and then saying goodbye to it. It was really hard for me to initially, you know, I'll say this. Yeah, you build something for years. And the reality is that opportunists are always interested in acquiring decent companies. And so you get, I started getting only a couple of years in, like, you know, first it was like a couple times a year, you know, hey, we're investors, we're interested in your company, you know, you know and I was, didn't really think much of it. And then like, as it goes and you kind of build a better name and a reputation, all of a sudden you get like 20 of them a week. It eventually becomes like this overload where you're like, my goodness, I don't know which one of these people, if I even wanted to do this, who's the right? Like as a founder, when you own the culture of a company, when you're like trying to do right by the team, but you're also trying to do right by yourself, it's like you've got to find almost this perfect combination of the two. It made selling for me anyway, really hard. 
because I was like, I've got to find the right partner that I believe in my heart will take care of the people who have helped me build this. Like at the end of the day, like I'm walking away theoretically with the big financial win. There's a bit of guilt in that, honestly. You know, you feel like you're kind of, you know, I didn't want to throw, you know, quote unquote, throw people in the wolves. And so as Logistive grew and became more successful, more capable of kind of standing on its own, you know, it became clear that I needed to do that. If Logistive was going to be successful, I had to do that. I had to be able to focus. And so I thankfully over the, I mean, it took over a year. One of the groups that had reached out to me ended up being a great, what I felt was a great fit. And they're another Blue Yonder, you know, partner and a large consulting firm called Spinnaker SCA. Working with them, I felt like I had, you know, the right partner. Like I said, it still took a lot of time, but it felt right. And that was when I finally was like, okay, I can let go now. So how would you describe your decision-making criteria then? Obviously, there's an economic component. Then there is this company-level culture impact to other people component. And then there's also this very personal side of you got to take care of your family and maybe set up your kids and their kids for you know financial well-being off into the future. Who did you talk to when you were weighing those criteria? And were there late nights in the kitchen? Like, should we do this? Or this feels right? Or if this feels wrong, I met somebody, they want to make an offer, but I, I just don't feel right about it. How did you untangle that? Initially, it was honestly a big part of the process. A big part of the challenge in general was the last three years economically. You know, Axologics grew rapidly, you know, five straight times on the Inc. 5000 list. We topped 10 million in revenue two consecutive years. It felt like we had this like substantial thing that we had built. The pandemic definitely, you know, was a hit. That was really hard because honestly, for the better part of two and a half years, you know, we were struggling to find our footing, like to reestablish the footing. It's almost like this wave swept under us and just kind of wiped out all the beach underneath us. And we're like stumbling around trying to figure it out. You know, we still had great customers. We still had a great team. It was this realization for me that I didn't have up to that point, we had been able to grow fast enough and, you know, generally be, you know, we had the right financial partners, the right, you know, banking and debt relationships and stuff like that. Like I could grow the company and I felt like I was doing it the right level of service as a founder, as a shareholder, as a you know, financier, et cetera. Got to this point where I thought there's no way I can keep both of these companies going at the same time. I have to pick one or the other. And then if I do that, I want to make sure that you know, when I hand off the one that it's going to continue to be successful. So my, you know, certainly my wife and I talked about it a lot, but we were, it was pretty easy for us to say, you know, this is the right decision to make because we do the financial impacts of, you know, could we grow Axologics? Could we invest in Axologics? Could we grow Logistive? Could we invest in Logistive? Could we get, you know, capital partners for one or the other when we had both on our balance sheet, you know, both on my, you know, the whole focus thing is so important to investors. The biggest factor of all was, um, you know, I asked a lot of peers, you know, I'm part of a Vistage peer group here in the Raleigh Triangle area. You know, a lot of folks in that group had sold companies, had, you know, founded multiple companies. Yeah, I got a lot of really great perspectives there kind of saying, you know, here's what to expect. I also had a couple of uh, friends who I've, you know, kind of, shared the journey with a little bit who you know, said, hey, look, it's about that time. You should think about this. It wasn't an easy decision, that's for sure. Um, in fact, it was also not an easy decision because we weren't, we weren't actually hitting our numbers. I was really hoping to grow faster and we weren't growing as fast as I wanted to. So I was also trying to be as honest as possible with the acquirer about that. So it was just some interesting processes. And in the end, I feel pretty good about the outcome. 
you know, it's one of those things where you have to look back and go, okay, was this a bad idea? Answer is absolutely not. It was the right thing to do. Well, congratulations. Not everybody makes it to the exit stage in any way, shape or form on a positive note. And so to have that success after the years that you put in is fantastic. And knowing that you've done it, you know, a lot of it the old fashioned way makes me particularly happy here as a bootstrap centric show. You also mentioned, you know, belonging to a peer group. What did you find or what do you find to be the most valuable about not doing entrepreneurship on your own? Entrepreneurship is incredibly lonely. You know, if you don't have a peer group, it is really hard to be honest with people. One of the things I've realized is it's incredibly, incredibly hard to be honest with people who are economically dependent on you. And your family is economically dependent on you. Your employees are economically dependent on you. And what's worse is entrepreneurship generally involves, you know, the whole joke. It's like, you know, your friends and family are like your initial supporters. They're your initial financiers, et cetera. It's like you build this friends and family. Your friends and family end up working for you, which was totally the case for me. So I have all these different things where it's like, okay, I'm scared that we can't make payroll next week. That is a terrible thing to tell one of your team members. <laughs> you know, you can't have that conversation with them. Yeah, and I joined my peer group, actually, I joined Vistage very early in my Axologics experience. It was 2015, actually, at the urging of a, you know, a very good friend of mine who uh, runs a business that is phenomenally more successful than mine. <laughs> and he said, you will want to have a sounding board of people who aren't going to sugarcoat their responses. They're not going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Because if all you ever get is what you want to hear, the biggest value of having a peer group is that you recognize that there are unknown unknowns. That was totally my case. Like as Axologics was growing, I'm like, holy cow, this thing is actually like going really well. What do I need to do next? And joining Vistage was super helpful for that. You know, and then as you run into hard times, or even when you have, you know, opportunities, like, you also don't want to, you know, hey, we're going to, you know, we're looking at acquiring something or we're, we're looking at making this huge investment. We're looking at growing the team by X. Hey, I know I need to level up one part of my operation. I think that means I'm going to need to move some people on the bus. All of those conversations are really hard to have if you're doing it alone. We'll be right back. Have you heard about Bitfreighter and the EDI revolution? Bitfreighter helps companies automate communication with their freight partners through unlimited messaging and quoting. Traditional providers can't say that. The Bitfreighter team is also available 24-7 and responds immediately by phone, email, or yes, even text. Legacy providers can't say that either. So if you want to scale your operations to save time and money, come join the EDI revolution with us. Visit bitfreighter.com to get started today. What I've found in talking to so many founders is there is a dividing line about who is willing to go into a place of self-awareness and humility to even recognize that there are unknown unknowns and their own blind spots and to surround themselves with other people. It is a line, but it's very hard to define because you have to have a high degree of self-confidence, complete faith about what you're building while simultaneously not having all of the answers. The folks that I enjoy spending the most amount of time with are the ones who realize, hey, this is complicated and I don't have all the answers. I'd rather take the advice and counsel of people who've been where I am before are willing to hear 
because a lot of people aren't willing to hear, especially if you've had success. It's also the success bias is so dangerous. Everything I've touched has turned to gold. That must mean it's me. I've got the Midas touch. Oh, wait, the moral of that story isn't quite what you think it is. <laughs> no, it's not. You know? <laughs> what I found is interesting is, you know, one of the, even my journey, like I started off in, in my Vistage group, for example, and, you know, and there were a lot of places that I was totally open to feedback, but there were also some places that I was like, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's not what I'm trying to learn right now. I'm trying to solve this problem. And, and I had multiple times where people in the group are like, you need to be open up to this idea first. And that will make you able to get to the next step. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, I don't need to think about that right now. I need to think about the next thing. And they're like, no, you're getting ahead of yourself. Like slow down and take the journey. Don't try to skip the steps. Like you said, like the Midas touch doesn't work the way you think it does. The outcome, if you, know, if you skip the steps, the outcome can be not nearly as good as what you were hoping for. And you know, sometimes it can still be positive. But even in the, in the positivity, you're looking at it going, well, you know, I see problems. I see things that needed to be addressed a while ago. And I think that's actually entrepreneurs love to charge forward, but sometimes skipping steps is actually like our biggest weakness. And certainly I've done that a number of times and I had to kind of like go back and put my tail between my legs and say, yeah, you guys were right. You know, like I've got to solve this problem. How would you recommend I do this? And then kind of have to you know, have that hard conversation with yourself where it's like, okay, I've been successful to a point, but I mean, Everyone can learn from everybody else, quite honestly. There's no such thing as someone I can't learn something from. What role has failure played then in your own growth? <laughs> failure has been, you know, like I said, I have an MBA from the School of Hard Knocks. The annoying part about that education style is that um, life gives you the test before you have the opportunity to study. And so, <laughs> so, you know, unlike a traditional education where, you know, you learn the material and then you get tested on the material. You know, when you're founding a business and you're kind of like doing the entrepreneur path, there's so many things about joking aside, even having an MBA, it doesn't mean like you can learn all you want to in an educational setting, you know, an academic setting. It doesn't prepare you for the realities of the real world. The real world is not predictable. My journey has very much been this roller coaster. I literally have, you know, like you asked me at the beginning of the, you know, beginning of the uh, discussion, like, hey, how you doing? You know, how are you feeling? And, you know, and I've said many times, like on the same day, like I can be way up like, oh, man, this is going great. And then like one email comes in and you're like, oh, woo, you know, this like crash at the bottom of the roller coaster. There's a lot of times where you have to just really will yourself to not jump off. My entire journey has been OK, really, really great. And then, you know, the problem happens and the failure happens. You know, you disappoint a customer, you have a terrible conversation with an employee, you say something you shouldn't have said, or maybe you don't say something you should have said. And you kind of have to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how you want to be like what you want to be as a leader, and then work very hard to kind of be that and become that. And it comes through trial and error. I personally don't believe anybody is a natural born leader. I believe certainly you have, you know, people have traits that, you know, make them more prone to being a leader or more, you know, more, you know, naturally led towards that. Leadership is something that you don't get taught. It's something you learn. And it's something you learn primarily through experience. People follow you not because of what you learned in class. They get on board with you because you can communicate a vision and you can tell people, you know, we're going someplace together. And then every step of the way, especially if you're like me, you're like constantly asking yourself the question, well, crap, why are these people following me? 
am I the right person for this? Like, you know, that, that whole imposter syndrome thing, like I've struggled with that year in, year out. And I've had to actually put a lot of effort into to think through and go, okay, I'm not perfect. And I'm okay with that. But I am definitely the right person to be doing what I'm doing right now. And be okay with the failure. My rule of thumb is, you know, I'm okay with doing something stupid once. I just need to make sure I don't do something stupid, the same stupid thing twice. That inner battle in development is so significant for the people that are willing to explore that. If you're very fortunate, you've got people in your life that have modeled that for you and and show that kind of self-awareness and commitment to personal growth. So I guess I'd like to know who some of your heroes are. One of the people in my life that Honestly, he's always, you know, and he's probably going to listen to this. So, uh, you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'll end up having a conversation after it about it. My dad has been throughout my life, one of the hardest working people I've ever met. You know, and interestingly enough, he actually works for me now, in addition to being a pastor at a church that he's been at in rural northern Illinois for over 30 years now. You know, he hasn't founded businesses. Well, I guess he technically has because insurance agents are independent. I mean, he's gone through a, a whole different list of roles and, you know, and companies and he's kind of built himself up, been incredibly helpful for me and, you know, in building really both Axologics and Logistiview. He's always been a servant leader and, you know, and not in the sense of being an entrepreneur, but just in the sense of like, you know, as a pastor wanting to help the community, as a member of our team wanting to, you know, help the team. I learned a lot of good things about work ethic and, uh, you know, and servant leadership from him really kind of starting at a young age. Over the course of my career, I've had a lot of really great business leaders as well. One of my first leaders at when I was working at Take-Two Interactive or Jack of All Games, a guy by the name of Eric Clark, who was like the VP of IT in that area. And I was like a low-level analyst, but he gave me the space to kind of expand my horizons to learn and to be part of things that normally like as a low level analyst, you're not really part of, but by kind of introducing, you know, being open to introducing and allowing me to participate in those broader discussions, I learned so much so fast. It's like drinking from a fire hose and those things. I mean, my education, honestly, MSOE was great as well. I had a few professors who were always saying, think about the big picture. Don't just focus on the small things. Think about the big picture that mindset, that education, kind of the whole process from, you know, kind of youth up, I was always trying to understand why. That seeking not just to do, but to understand why, I think was a big part and has been a big part of, you know, my growth trajectory over the course of time. That's one of the reasons I enjoy hearing from so many founders and their unique stories is when I ask that question, who are your heroes or who do you look up to? Sometimes it is a business figure, a Jack Welch or an Elon Musk or Bill Gates. The vast majority of the time, it is a parent and a senior professional that invested in them when they were young. I'm realizing as we've been talking how parallel some of our experiences have been. One, I went to college in Wisconsin. Two, my dad is a pastor. Three, a huge influence in my life, of course, and somebody I've learned a ton from. But my mentor, professionally, I started at C.H. Robinson, and I was in my mid-20s and got invited to a PGA event that was held in Minneapolis. I'd never been to a work event like that before and got to go to this fancy dinner where our CEO was there. And I sat down next to this gentleman who was you know, 25 years older than me, and we just started talking. And he showed a real interest in what I was doing, and we had a great time. We laughed like idiots. And the next day, I learned that he was the senior vice president. 
I didn't even know who he was. That was easily 19 years ago, 18 years ago. He is still in my life to this day. He's retired and we have dinner a couple of times a year. He's always asking me what's going on in my life. He's had a lot of difficulty. He lost his wife earlier this year. And yet every single time that I talk to him, he always wants to put the focus on me and support me and ask me, you know, what are you struggling with right now? What are you stuck on? And then he helps me unlock that inner barrier inside of me that's holding me back. To have people like that in your life is almost an unfair advantage. It is such a superpower. And so I just wanted to express my own gratitude to Mark if he's listening, because he's had that impact in my life. Now that you are where you are, how do you cascade that out and down to other people and the next generation, perhaps, or even just people in the industry? How do you make somebody else better? I would say that's almost like the defining legacy question of any people focused entrepreneur. You know, if your objective is just to make a ton of money and you made a ton of money and you're good, like that's one thing, but don't get me wrong, I want to make a ton of money. But the idea of like, okay, well, why? You know, again, what's the why? You know, what's the why behind it all? And so I personally love participating in peer groups. It doesn't matter what stage of company you know you are, it doesn't matter what type of business you are. One of the things I love about, you know, about Vistage has been that it's amazing how many problems have no industry specification at all. Like people and and team dynamic problems, you know, business model problems. Like at the end of the day, you know, you've got to treat your people well. You've got to build a product that's, you know, good enough to sell and you've got to sell it for a price that's higher than what it takes to make it. That's true no matter what. And the problems, they have dependencies that are unique to your business, but ultimately everybody can weigh in. And so some of the things that that I do now is, you know, I do, you know, participate in peer groups. You know, if I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who's looking like, for example, I think, you know, next month, I'm going to be doing a panel on lower mid-market services firm exit events. Because, you know, I've been through the rigmarole, you know, done the PE due diligence cycle. And uh, that's a place where at least I have the ability to provide some context and maybe give some people a feeling for what to expect, or maybe give them a recommendation for you know, what to look into or double check for, etc. Wherever I can do that, I do. If everything goes the way I want it to, you know, I have high hopes of being able to contribute from a um, philanthropy and uh, time perspective to education of the next generation, particularly of entrepreneur engineers. I'm an engineer by education. I'm an entrepreneur by choice. And I've learned that those two things don't always combine very well. And so my goal, if I can make an impact and help engineers be better entrepreneurs from the start, I will have achieved some purpose that I feel good about. You don't know this, but I have a piece of paper on my desk. I started a list of entrepreneur types. And one of them that I just wrote down last week was the engineer entrepreneur. And another one is the sales entrepreneur. And another is the corporate entrepreneur. Each of them comes in to starting a business with a different set of experiences and their own paradigm and their own weaknesses. It's becoming easier and easier for me to spot the opportunity for entrepreneurs. Engineers typically struggle with sales and marketing. They love the way that the watch gets built, sometimes to the detriment of just telling someone what time it is. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because in, you know, in my personal experience, uh, engineers in general love to believe that technical meritocracy 
will win out. The reality is that in business, it's not about the capability or quality of your product. Those two things do have to at least be suitable to the market need. Nobody's going to buy a product that they have never heard of. But I always love to remind, you know, there are young engineering entrepreneurs as well as even my own product development team to a certain extent. Guys, you got to remember, engineering without sales is nothing more than an expensive hobby. You know, as an engineer, you're like, oh, I built something amazing. It's going to sell itself. And that is the most like ridiculous BS ever. You know, we honestly, and, you know, and I'm, I'm using we because I've been there, like we honestly believe in the beginning that that's what's going to happen. And you don't realize how important go-to-market strategy is and how important, you know, getting the right sales leader, who isn't you, by the way, as an entrepreneur, like if you're an engineer, don't be the sales leader. And then building that team, like you have to complement yourself with the people who know how to do the things that you're not naturally good at. And it's honestly, it's the same way for the sales entrepreneur. If you sell a vision that isn't deliverable, that's equally as bad. Oh, you nailed it. I was going to go right there because if you're expert at sales and marketing, you can create demand and you're going to sign up a lot of customers, but your customer churn is going to be through the roof if you can't execute. We see a lot of that in the industry with companies that have figureheads that are very promotional and get a lot of interest and sign up a lot of customers. But then if they haven't built the underlying infrastructure, once the customer has signed up and problems start to manifest, or they aren't able to resolve them quickly or professionally sometimes even, and they lose brand equity. Oh, and we're seeing that honestly right now. We're seeing that all over the industry. I mean, the pandemic created a lot of bubbles. There's no question that it created a logistics technology bubble too. And you know, we're seeing some of those valuations and some of those big name companies kind of coming back down to earth right now, struggling with layoffs and revenue shrinking. Honestly, there's a lot of news about it right now. And you know, I'm not going to lie, there's part of you as an entrepreneur that's like, oh, man, they raised $100 million. Like what I could do with $100 million. At the same time, though, you look at it and you go, well, you know, the playbook was definitely not a long-term value playbook. It was a short-term value playbook. My focus has always been long-term value. Like, you know, I don't want to build something that's like a flash in the pan. Not necessarily saying that you know, quick wins are a bad thing by any stretch of imagination, but I think as an engineer too, my focus has always been, well, if I'm going to build something, I'm going to build something good. And I'm going to build something that helps my customers make a difference for a long period of time. And honestly, I feel pretty good about where, where we are on that journey right now, but there's still plenty of things that we have to get right before uh, you know, I see the big win that I'm eventually hoping for. Well, and the companies that have that focus and grow responsibly, take care of their customers, and just do the core underlying thing well, it might come at the expense of speed and even attention. I mean, that's why this show exists in the very first place was to counteract the buzz machine that's out there of the venture-backed, sometimes flashes in the pan, and yet companies like yours will still be plugging along, adding value. You're still going to be here in 10 years. Logistiview is hopefully going to be here in 25 years or 30 years whether you're at that point still a part of it or not. But a great way to wrap this conversation up is you've had a great story to get here. And we obviously didn't even have enough time to unpack some of the other experiences that you've had as in companies that you've started. Being able to stay grounded despite the waves that are going to crash against you as an entrepreneur and stay focused and keep adding value and doing it in a people-centric way, that's a good way to spend a life. There's a lot of things that can be said about entrepreneurs, good or bad. What I'm hoping for is if I end up being you know, incredibly successful one day, I'm hoping that the story of you know, kind of my legacy is uh, you know, that was a great company. 
the company built a great culture and a great product. Customers love it. The you know employees love it. You know, and Seth honestly tried to do right by everybody. You hear a lot of stories about you know, and you mentioned some of the you know industry titans of the last you know twenty thirty years, and certainly those people are admirable. But you know, a lot of times there's trade offs, and so I think as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to decide what it is that you want to be known for, what's most important, and then prioritize those degrees of importance to produce the end result that you're looking for. Well, Seth, thank you so much for sharing your story. There are lots of nuggets for people to draw out of this conversation and just know that we're all rooting for you. Appreciate that, Nate. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. And a special thank you to our sponsors and the team behind the scenes who make it all possible. Be sure to like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast to get the latest updates. To learn more about the show and connect with the growing community of entrepreneurs, visit logisticsfounders.com. And of course, thank you to all the founders who trust us to share their stories. 